You may know that I am the crossing guard in the morning at my son's school, in no small part because it was pure chaos over there, and ordering chaos makes me happy. One thing I didn't realize is how my background as a churchy kind of person, where greeters make the first moments of coming together feel more friendly, is that I have a habit of saying good morning. So I did. At first, if a dozen kids and their grown-ups were crossing, maybe one of those grown-ups would say it back and the others would look relieved that somebody could sort of stand in for them saying good morning. But I persisted for one simple reason. I wanted to normalize a less rushed and more cheerful morning culture because it's safer. Families in a rush are risky. That's true if they're in cars. It's true if they're crossing the street. And I just wanted to do what I could to help ease that a bit. A couple months in, as parents also learned whose kids might be in their kids' class, as they saw me more, as their kids recognized me, the crosswalk became a good morning kind of place. And together, we've all normalized this kind of culture where we make our school warm in the morning. We want a friendly community. We want our kids to feel welcome as they arrived. James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits, writes about this, citing how research shows that the people we connect with really have a strong influence, both to help or hurt, our desired outcomes, especially to the degree that those people also value and participate in what we do or not. In other words, if you want to achieve a goal, you'd be well served to join a group that already does the thing you'd hope to do. The group normalizes what you want to be. This is the power of relationship, to normalize values and live that way together. And it has a really significant impact on how we would think together about practicing shalom in relationship. We all have a relational world we live in. We have classmates and coworkers, friends and family members. And while we know all relationships come with risk and challenges, but also they make our lives richer and more full. Relationships are the means by which we feel known and have a sense of belonging. And we offer that to others so they can feel known and belong as well. Now, as we have been in this series, Practicing Shalom, we've noted how the word itself, shalom, moves beyond the idea of peace that comes from looking within. In the biblical sense, it is a holistic goodness. Goodness that is within, but also around, among and between. It's the peace of all things well. And today, we're asking how might we actively promote peace between? How might we even give peace to one another? So we're looking today at the ways that people make peace possible. People make peace possible especially as they normalize acting in ways that promote your holistic well-being. And as they normalize avoiding, apologizing for, and advocating against things that don't. I'll say that one more time, that people promote shalom relationally as they normalize acting in ways that promote your holistic well-being and normalize avoiding, apologizing for, or advocating against things that don't. Shalom in relationship grows as we normalize pursuing the good God invites us into. And that seems really simple or perhaps a bit abstract, but we know it actually can be hard to do in the concrete. 
Our wider culture normalizes the opposite of shalom in a lot of ways. If we say it would be good to be generous to one another, we also know that in our culture there is a gets what my, what's mine effort happening. If we say it'd be good to think collectively about not just what's good for me, but also what's good for you, even if it's a little bit costly, we know that it's also normalized to just claim my rights. If we say it'd be good to normalize together rhythms of work and rest, where I don't mind if you're not available, because I know that could be for your good. We also know we've got a culture of workaholism and maximization. Take one simple example. There's a lot of research that suggests that kids need serious tech limits, including not having phones until they're older. And parents are not at all united in normalizing kids not having or having limited tech. My older son is in sixth grade. He is the only sixth grader in his school without a personal smartphone. On the other hand, we have a group of friends through my younger son's classroom who are aligned in wanting to limit their kids' access to a personal phone until much later on. We actually talked about that together. We've normalized doing this as a group. And even though we are only about 14 members of our kids' class, seven families, that is, out of the 24 or so, having a third of the class aligned together is still more helpful than when it's not normalized at all. The reality is when we normalize something together, it makes peace more possible. So what would happen if we normalize shalom-like living together? What if the gift we offer each other is making those kinds of things the good we all hope to make possible? I'm going to read four passages of scripture, each of which is a reminder of the shalom goodness we're invited into by God. And as I do, here's my question for you. What if we were people who made it okay, more than okay, to live like this? Matthew 5. Blessings on the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Blessings on the mourners. You're going to be comforted. Blessings on the meek. You're going to inherit the earth. Blessings on people who hunger and thirst for God's justice. You're going to be satisfied. Blessings on the merciful. You'll receive mercy yourselves. Blessings on the pure in heart. You will see God. Blessings on the peacemakers. You'll be called God's children. Blessings on people who are persecuted because of God's saving plan. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Ephesians 4, 1-6. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Galatians 5, starting in verse 22. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ 
have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. The last one starts with understanding that the community of the Corinthians who are reading this letter together have gotten into some squabbles. In fact, they've begun taking one another to court with lawsuits, but not just court together that they solve problems, the regular court in the wider community. And Paul, who was very concerned about how Christians would behave in honorable ways because it's how they represent Jesus, cannot understand why they would choose this. Why would they normalize having grievances against each other and taking them to court before the unrighteous? As he says in verse one, this is 1 Corinthians 6. When any of you have a grievance against each other, do you dare take it to the court before the unrighteous instead of taking it before the saints? And then he goes on to say, you all have wise people among you who could help you sort this out. In verse four, he says, if you have ordinary cases, then do you appoint as judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be? There's no one person wise enough to decide between brothers and sisters. Instead, brothers and sisters go to court against one another. And this before the unbelievers. And here's the verse. In fact, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? These passages together where people are figuring out how to be a Jesus community, living in shalom-like ways, each one is an invitation to normalize the good God has invited us into. Things like gentleness and humility and even being willing to be wronged for the sake of great love, for the sake of showing the world what God is like. It's lovely. And it'd be costly. It's beautiful. And it takes intentionality. It's kind of dreamy, but the dream only gets realized if we do it. The practice of normalizing who we want to be and become is so powerful as a way to practice shalom together. But it only works if we actually show up and do it. Nothing happens without showing up. The practice of shalom in relationship can't actually occur if people in the relationship don't get together, have conversations, put in the time. As a church, we talk about relationship as a core value. And it's part of how we allocate our time on a Sunday, whether it's on Zoom or at dinner church. Sometimes people who aren't yet part of Pomona Valley Church and see us through internet-based things say everything looks so dreamy, this church around the table. And they're right. But it's a dream come true because our people are making it that way. Showing up, telling stories, listening well, remember what's going on in one another's lives, helping each other out. It's remarkably practical how this dream comes true of extending shalom one to another. Frederick Buechner once wrote, The grace of God means something like, Here is your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party wouldn't be complete without you. He goes on to say, Here's the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. The party wouldn't be complete without you. 
Practicing shalom can't happen without you. But if you'll show up, you could be part of a wonderfully weird and dreamy sort of group that normalizes a better way to be together. To the glory of the God we love. Amen.